EMS on the Mountain is an entertainment, educational and commentary product recorded by Sean and Mike and produced by them. Nothing recorded by Sean, Mike or any of the guests of the show is endorsed nor authorized by their respective employers or agencies unless explicitly outlined. All commentary and statements made are their own. Always follow your respective medical protocols. Nothing said on this platform should be considered medical direction. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the EMS on the Mountain podcast, a show for those interested in austere and wilderness medicine. This podcast provides insight into the unique aspects and challenges of bringing modern EMS into wilderness and austere environments. Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of EMS on the Mountain. As usual, you've got Mike and Sean, and Mike is unwell or has allergies, whatever. So if you hear that sickness in the background, it's him. I'm just a weak human. Uh, So today, I think this is our, I don't know if we'll see, this might be the last episode we put out for the year, depending on some timing. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to see if I can hurt some feelings out there amongst the wilderness medicine crowd. So the general topic for this is, do we need a wilderness anything certification? And uh, so here we are. So we're going to make a lot of the wilderness medicine folks a bit grumpy, right? Because I'm calling bullshit on the entire wilderness medicine existence of things, right? My personal opinion, and you could put all the caveats of the opinions expressed within the show are mine and maybe Mike's, but whatever. So as it is, right? So it is my belief that wilderness medicine certifications, every one of them, across the board is just, it's a waste of time, paper, and money 90% of the time. Now, we'll talk about why there's some of the goodness in some of the things, but for the most part, should you seek out something that says wilderness? Generally, no. All right, big piece to this, right? Wilderness is the environment. It's not the medicine. It's not a legitimate subspecialty, in my opinion, right? I'm a whatever my subspecialty in emergency medicine is wilderness medicine. No, it's not, right? You can't tell me what that is. Cardiology, gastroenterology, critical care, these are subspecialties, right? Emergency medicine, those are defined fields of practice that have specific knowledge bases, um, depending on what they are, scopes of practice, etc. Wilderness medicine, you can pretend that it's got standards and it's got a scope and everything else, but let's be honest, no, it does not, right? You can say that, oh, but when I'm practicing in a wilderness environment, I can do X with the changes from when I'm in an urban environment. That didn't change anything. You could still do that same skill in your urban environment. Your medical direction simply doesn't allow it. So you have to look at the whys, okay? First, we're going to start off. There's no wilderness-specific medicine. It is medicine practice in the wilderness. And we're going to use wilderness as that generic topic, you know, some of the austere, remote, whatever you want to call it. There are some additional skills required to practice in the environment, things like perhaps technical rescue, being able to get on rope, patient access, patient extrication, some mountaineering skills, being able to ski, snowshoe, etc. right? But these are largely access skills, things that allow you to get to and from 
the patient or the environment, but they're not the medicine, right? You got to remember that. Other skills that might be out there, we'll discuss some of those later maybe. Wilderness and austere medicine does not have a special or different type of medicine. Uh, these are terms we use to justify an acceptable level of substandard care. And everyone's going to be like, no, no. It's like, yes, yes. Because if we look at a lot of wilderness certifications out there, even ones targeted towards licensed certified medical professionals, and they start breaking out sticks and duct tape, you're on crack. That's no longer good care. That's substandard care. But we're in the wilderness, and that's your excuse. Stop it. It's bullshit, right? Quit teaching people how to use sticks and duct tape. Get away from it. Sam splints, triangle bandages, coban. Let's get on board, step into 2023, and come up to the standard of care that people should expect from a provider in the woods or not. With all that, big breath. I would challenge anybody that's listening, send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com and provide me one legitimate example of something that is wilderness only piece of medicine. Not just medicine that was done in the wilderness, but something that is only done in the wilderness. And of course, you can't use butt sticks and duct tape because butt sticks and duct tape is, again, just substandard care, right? I look forward to someone, if you can provide me an example of that, I don't think you're going to have it. I've talked to a lot of other folks in this arena, and no one can give me an example. Most people will immediately default to environmental medicine, things in the hot and the cold, or tropical medicine. But tropical medicine, downtown Bogota, in the largest, most developed hospital they've got, is dealing with tropical medicine. It's the same pathology and the same diseases. If you're an ED physician in Chicago in February, you're going to see hypothermia. It's just the way it is. Same way, if you're working in these metro hospitals in the hot seasons, you're going to see hyperthermia patients. Does that make you suddenly a wilderness physician or a wilderness provider because you're in a hospital? The answer is obviously no. Okay. So those things don't count. So, a couple of things tied to this, right? This show is about providing emergency medical services in the wilderness and austere environment. And so we've talked about that, and that is bringing organized, professional EMS level care out and into these remote and austere settings. So I'm going to use Doc Hawkins' book, Wilderness EMS, just because I think he did a really good job researching this and laying out some of these things, and he provides some good baseline definitions for us. So Wilderness EMS is the systematic and pre-planned delivery of wilderness medicine by formal healthcare providers. All right, we kind of pretty much got that down. This is not basic first aiders or even call advanced first aiders who come across somebody who's injured or ill in the woods and tries to help them out. Okay. But the key part of that is provides wilderness medicine. All right. So then we go back a couple pages and look for the definition of wilderness medicine. And that is medical care delivered in those areas where fixed or transient geographic challenges reduce availability of or alter requirements for medical or patient movement resources. So once again, it's talking about medicine being practiced in the wilderness. And there, you can put time factors into some of these things. You can put some geographic constraints about being a certain distance or time as well, or just general locations into those definitions. But the bottom line is you're providing medicine in a different environment. That's it. So let's, I guess that's enough of that. Mike, you have any comments on that initial bit of the, the rant? I've got some questions. Go away. You say go away or go away? I said go away. No, either one, go away or send them. So I think there's some nuance here that I want to tease out because I'm 
I'm familiar with your opinion on the matter insofar as we've talked about it briefly, but uh, I will preface this and, and we're recording some stuff in November of 2023 in some different orders than we're posting it on purpose. But I will state that in general, the podcast we're recording in these couple of weeks, typically we write a framework and we write a, a outline and then we follow it. We didn't do any of that. This is just a conversation. Sean's got an opinion on this and he wanted to put it out there. And I want to, I want to tease out some things for my better understanding. And I'm hoping everybody else listening gets a better understanding as well. I think what I just heard you say was, we don't need certification. That doesn't mean that practicing medicine in different environments, and I think I would get on the boat quite quickly. That's probably not a term I should use anymore. I'll use the term get on board quite quickly with the number of separate environments is relatively, like there's a lot of argument for paramedic specialties and left ankle trauma activations and such. And that's just not true, <laughs> right? We're not doctors, right? I mean, if you, modern medicine from a doctor perspective, from a, a medical practitioner perspective, has become more and more and more and more specialized. More and more and more and more people survive, right? Uh, I think I read somewhere recently, the average person has between five and seven surgeries in their life. A hundred years ago, that would have almost certainly been a death sentence. Nowadays, we've got such specialties and we have such positive outcomes from surgeries. But a lot of that is because you can spend a decade specializing in a particular type of cancer of a particular lymph node and removal of said cancer that doctors did not do 100 years ago. They were much more generalists. I am of the opinion that the EMS profession is in the business of stabilizing people and taking them to the doctor place. We are not in the business of doing some specialized wizardry to then release the patient and let them go. Maybe it will evolve into that. But EMS ain't that old. And the, the age-old principles of back of the day of scoop them up, throw them in the truck, drive fast to the doctor place and hope they make it, those largely still apply, though we have a lot more proverbial tools in the toolbox to keep them alive longer to make sure they get to the doctor place. I say all of that to say what you're saying is medicine in the woods ain't all that different than the hospital, or are you saying we don't need to certify people in some subspecialty of being a paramedic in the woods because it turns out it's just paramedicine in the woods? Yes. All right. So that's basically where we're at, right, is we're going to talk about a bunch of these different certifications, right? And we're going to give just some very general topical discussion of them. We're not doing deep dives on all these various things. But yes, right? Whether, and, and I would say this applies even at the wilderness first aider level and above, all the way through physicians, right? I don't care what level you're at. Basic medical care at your specific provider level doesn't change, right? So if I get a laceration at my house, how is the treating of that laceration at my house different than it is in, in the backcountry somewhere? Well, the you answer don't have is, certification in in-home laceration care, Sean, so you're probably well, not qualified to do it. Uh, nobody does. Well, Red Cross First Aiders probably do. That's probably a very specific module. But that's what I'm saying, right, is wound care, right, is, you know, stopping bleeding is mm -hmm. foundationally exactly the same across the board, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could get into arguments about legitimate tactical applications of that wound packing and some other things. But depending on where your level of practice is, wound packing is still part of your scope of practice. So we have to scale these appropriately, right? So a wellness first aid or someone who's taking a 16 or 20 hour course is probably shouldn't be doing a lot of wound packing necessarily, whatever. But as a paramedic, I guarantee pack, somebody's going to get on the internet and be like, I'm allowed to wound pack. I'm taking my first aid course. Look forward to it. Yeah. Hey, cool. Right. As I used to tell my folks, do what your rank can handle. 
And this turn, do what your rent can afford, as I've heard you say. Yeah, do what your, your legal fees think you can do. So, <laughs> same thing, right? It's like if you take a physician out of his hospital and you put him 25 miles deep in the woods in Alaska, and he's going to provide care for injury or illness X, it doesn't matter. Aside from he's no longer just going to be able to draw labs and ship them off to an MRI for a quick diagnostics to help out. The treatments, largely, it's the same, right? You've got to fix whatever it is, put the body back into some sort of homeostasis and stabilize it long enough to get them evacuated out to those places where the definitive care can occur. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is for you and I, we bring paramedicine to the woods, mm-hmm. right? So, and this, we've talked about this before in a couple of other episodes, I think, probably a, a couple of the early ones way back two years ago. You don't need training in wilderness medicine. Providers who want to do this work need training in the wilderness, right? They need training in the environment they're going to operate and function in, whether that's the desert, the jungle, the, you know, more temperate traditional mountains, uh, you know, in Europe or some of the hot, humid places around the world too, right? Those places in between. It's the environment that makes the difference. It's not the medicine doesn't change, right? It's the operating environment that things change. Does that clarify that for you? It does. I knew where you were going. I just wanted to make sure everybody's hearing what you're saying. Picking up what you're putting down, as it were. Picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah, I know, because this is going to, one of those just, it's going to, words going to flow out of my face and they may or may not make sense. You're not saying medicine in the woods is, an, is not a requirement. Hurt people in the woods need medicine. What you're saying Absolutely. is we don't have to certify ourselves in extra special medicine practices in the woods because it turns out it's just fucking medicine in the woods. Correct. Right. Okay. Okay. So Proceed, with that, sir. let us look at a few of these various certifications, right? So we're going to start off for the folks out there. Don't take this as the negative or the wrong way, but at the bottom of it, right? Your wilderness first aiders, your wilderness first responders, good training programs and I've taught many of these classes over the years, and it's my personal opinion that if you have a choice between a four-hour Red Cross basic first aid course or taking a 16-hour wilderness first aid course, take the 16-hour wilderness first aid course. It is much more comprehensive. You get better, well, instructors hopefully are good, right? Assuming you have a good instructor cadre. You just get a much better, more comprehensive, usable set of baseline first aid skills. However, at the end of the day, those courses really focus on BLS level, so basic life support stuff. Like b- both of those courses have a very heavy improvisational kind of make it up, MacGyver it as you go bit to them, right? That's kind of it's kind of what they're known for. It's kind of the jam, dude. Right? We've talked about the good and the bad of MacGyvering and, and improvising stuff, right? There is a time and a place, but it shouldn't be your your standard baseline. Some of these courses I've noticed over the last year or so that I've been checking up on some of the programs are starting to get away from that, but they still a heavy emphasis on it, building traction splints out of your telescoping ski poles or hiking poles and stuff. And that's a whole nother thing, right? And so again, we might be oversimplifying the improvisational nature of wilderness training, but again, bullshit, right? Like if you're certified as a wilderness first aider or wilderness first responder, and you're going out, I don't care if it's just a day hike with your family, or you are part of a guiding service, rafting, hiking, whatever it is, and you've left your base or your car at the parking lot 
without a an appropriately stocked and prepared first aid kit, you're an asshole, right? If your thought was, <laughs> I, will, I will just turn my t-shirt into a belly shirt and I will use sticks to splint this thing or treat that wound, you're already wrong, right? In my opinion, whether you're, you're not like, we'll call them a licensed healthcare provider, but you're a trained and certified first aider, right? A SAM splint weighs nothing. A couple of triangle bandages, some basic wound management stuff. Doesn't You can build a small first aid kit that doesn't weigh a lot, put it in the bottom of your pack, check it out every now and again, and you're good to go. You should never go out with the mindset of like, oh, well, I know how to improvise these things. I learned them in this course. And that's just your, your modus operandi. That's wrong. Okay. If you're a certified provider, carry an appropriate first aid medical kit with you. Commensurate with your level of certification, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to go up to the next level. And this is this one I always love, the Wilderness EMT, all right? The WEMT. You guys can't see my face, but I just made a face like, what, the the what? The, the right. who's it? Because it turns out I hate these. Yeah, it's, and I, anyway. So we're going to, you know, obviously this is at the emergency medical technician level. So BLS level care. And we're going to say this is, we're going to call this, put this under the EMS umbrella and not just a first aider, okay? So you're operating under direction of an OMD, an operational medical director or whatever your state or jurisdiction calls it. And then that course also has sticks and duct tape. Why? You're certifying emergency medical technicians to provide care in a wilderness environment. Should an EMT not have gone out with an appropriately stocked first aid kit and response bag of some sort? The answer is, well, of course he should have. But what if he's just hiking with his family on a day off? Again, he's a trained first responder emergency medical technician going into a wilderness or austere environment with family, friends, whatever it might be. Maybe he's going alone, likes to go solo hiking. I used to do this a lot. Take it appropriately stocked and prepared first aid kit, right? It's, it's BLS stuff anyways. You're not like having to hike in four bags of saline or lactated ringers and IV access equipment and all kinds of other stuff, right? It's a basic first aid kit. And for all intents and purposes, if you're a wilderness EMT, and you're not operating, we'll say, on duty under the cognizance and authority of an OMD, you're essentially a wellness first responder, and you're allowed to practice, you know, your foundational BLS-level skills. And that does not include, depending on your jurisdiction, necessarily, superglottic airways and some other stuff. Just keep that in mind, right? What I love about this certification is there are now a couple of companies, one of them, one of the big national providers, where you can earn your wilderness EMT certification from the comfort of your living room 100% online. How is that preparing an EMT to function in the wilderness environment? And the answer is, it's not. So why in God's name would you want a wilderness EMT card other than you think it sounds good on a resume somewhere, right? Somebody might care about that. Most agencies that will employ an emergency medical technician to provide care for them in wilderness or austere environments. We had that interview with Jason Tartalone, right? He does mm -hmm. contract work. He's a paramedic, but they have plenty of EMTs that do the exact same work. Do you need to have a wilderness EMT to go and get that job? The answer is no, right? They need, you need to be a certified EMT. But if it makes you feel better to have a wilderness EMT card, by all means, go for it, get one. I'm not poo-pooing you going and attending any of these programs. I've gone to just about every one of them at some point or another in my life, but just know what you're getting. Okay. All right. Here's one that's going to rankle some feathers, probably the wilderness paramedic certification, right? The W. Can, 
Can I ask you a question? Absolutely, you can. Do it. I don't know of one. You might. There is no distinction at an actual certification and authorization to practice in any state in the United States. I'm not going to talk about the world because I'm less knowledgeable there. That a wilderness EMT is seen as a different level of care than an EMT. You get a national registry card in most of the good courses, and you're a nationally registered EMT. You're not a nationally registered wilderness EMT. There is no such thing as a nationally registered wilderness EMT from the national registry. And the registry is, lo and behold, in the United States, pretty much the de facto standards body for most states is a baseline testing framework, even if the states do something slightly differently for their affiliation and their uh, their issuance of cards. Most states use the registry as the framework. Is there anybody using the wilderness EMT as like a framework for a different practice level that you know? Not that I'm aware of, because once again, if you're doing it under the cognizance of an organized EMS type system with a supervising mm-hmm. medical director, nobody cares what your little wilderness card says. You're functioning as an EMT mm-hmm. and they might modify your scope of practice based on your operating in that more austere remote environment. Like you might be mm-hmm. as, as an EMT BLS provider, be allowed to start IVs that administer up to 500 milliliters of normal saline, as mm-hmm. an example. But then you have to go through your agency's training program and be certified on that specific skill that's outside of your scope. I don't know anywhere like you that says, oh, well, hell, you have a wilderness EMT card. Cool. You can now do these things because wilderness EMT program doesn't teach those things. Right. You're also certified to use duct tape and sticks. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's the biggest difference because, I mean, I don't know what it's like these days, but when I went back to EMT school and including when I went to EMT school the first time, again, lesson learned, folks, never let your stuff expire. (laughs) We learned about heat illness and we heard about cold injuries, right? And when they're hot, you have to cool them. When they're cold, you have to warm them, blah, 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 right? Yes, that's an oversimplification, right? You might get a touch more information on that attending a wilderness EMT program, right? You're going to, because that's when everybody thinks wilderness medicine, the environmental medicine pieces are the, are the big ones, right? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get a little bit more of that than you might in your standard EMT class, maybe, depends on where you go. And if you're doing like the upgrade classes, like the one you're already in EMT, and now you're going to get your wellness EMT upgrade, you're going to get a couple of PowerPoint slides on each of those as well. You're not going to get into a lot of deep information on those, right? It's just just the way it is, right? Because, and again, at the BLS level, there's only so much you can do. Yep. All right. Okay. So now again, we're getting into the WPC, right? The the brand new IBSC certification, WPC, Mike and I are both. WPC guys, we were beta testers, like, hooray, we have a cool new patch. What does that test mean? I don't know. Again, I, I took a beta test. Maybe it's changed a little bit, probably just a little bit, but it's a written test. All engaged is, did you read the right books and retain just the right bits of knowledge to be a board-certified wilderness paramedic? It doesn't evaluate whether you can actually function and operate in a wilderness environment. It doesn't gauge whether you can actually get on rope access your patient, whether that means going up or down, stabilize your patient in the environment, and then work with an extrication plan to move them out of these places. You took a test. If you read through the Wellness Medical Society clinical practice guidelines, and you know those really well, and you know a couple of other little nuggets about a little bit of tech rescue here, a little cave rescue, just little smatterings, you're going to pass that test. But it does in no way, shape, or form evaluate your ability to actually be a wilderness paramedic. It, like most of these certifications, it tests your ability to pass the test. 
which a lot of people can argue is the same thing with like the National Registry, et cetera. But it's very loose. It doesn't mean you can operate in the environment. It means you've got a patch. At the end of the day, that's really all it is. And if the critical care community quit giving all their money over to the IBSC and did internal certifications like they used to do, right, instead of having a third party certify their critical care and flight medics, you find the same thing, right? Most of those guys are like, yeah, you're asked questions about stuff that you will never see, stuff you will never do, but there it is on the test. So that is what it is, right? So you take that test, you get your patch and a certificate. Does that mean now that you've never done a day of your life in the wilderness, but you're now ready? No, not at all, right? It's just, it is what it is. Any comments on the WPC, Mike, since you yourself are one? I, yeah, I want to draw, I want to draw a distinction here. And this is, this may be news to some folks. Uh, you and I tend to keep up pretty closely in the education realm, just out of interest. The National Registry is moving away from practical testing as well, because they mm. have identified that testing someone's ability to memorize the steps to reading a 12 lead and providing the right answer as to whether it was an inferior or lateral or whatever the case may be, right? And then reiterating the medications that one would administer for a given cardiac event based on metrics, even though the practical was supposed to be hands-on. Or I guess a better example would be when I took my paramedic exam, right? You go to the room and you've got a trauma patient and you're supposed to do like XABC, right? You got to do stuff in the right order to this dummy to prove that you know how to stop examination before you worry about tubing them. Because it turns out that if you bleed to death, it doesn't really matter whether you can breathe or not. Those tests, testing practical skills doesn't result in capability, right? That comes with practice, time, and evolution and repetition. Where I draw the line personally between a industry certification and a testing body is whether or not a governing body adopts that certification for authorization to practice. So as we just discussed a minute ago, most states have adopted the National Registry in some way, manner, shape, or form as a standard for testing that meets a minimum criteria the state would require to issue you a certification or credentialing at a certain level of practice that is commiserate with the state's expectations of a provider to do certain things to certain people in the, in the effort to try to keep them from dying or provide them an appropriate level of care. The IVSC, to my knowledge, is not adopted by any state agency that says you must carry an IVSC certification to be allowed to operate at a certain level. It's just not, it is not the way it works. They're cool, right? Yay, you, 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 get, uh, you get swagger by passing a test, right? But passing the test doesn't make you a better provider. Passing the test means you pass the test. The desire to provide good care and retain knowledge that is going to be germane to providing said care is what's really, really important. I've studied for other IBSC tests. Now I may take some in the future for the swagger. It's for the swag, right? <laughs> I will argue that the flight paramedic slash critical care paramedic test in their arena is somewhat more germane to the arena of doing things beyond the 911 response medic thing. But I've got a lot of friends that will tell you they took the test, they learned a lot, and then they forgot 50% of it because it wasn't germane to their job. Yeah. Right? A lot of flight industries require you to get the FPC within two years of hire, but and I'm going to turn this on its ear a little bit. Note, you were not required to hold an FPC to get the job. You were required to get the FPC within a time frame after acquiring the job, which means you are allowed to operate as long as your medical director allows you to at the same level as somebody that has the extra shiny patch on their shoulder. 
for two up to two years, depending on the terms of your employment, maybe under guidance, maybe under tutelage, whatever the case may be. But it's your paramedic certification that allows you to apply for the job. It was not your FPC that allowed you to apply for the job. The FPC is an insurance and a coverage thing that says we yes. hold our providers to a higher level, right? And it may be terms of employment, right? There is nothing, and I've got no problem with employers holding people to a higher standard to be able to keep their job to provide excellent care. I love it, right? I think the wilderness community on whole, and this is, I am probably very jaded based on experiences I've had over the last 15, 18 years. I think the wilderness medicine community, whatever the, we want to call ourselves, needs to hold <laughs> our providers to a much higher standard of care than, oh, uh, shit. Maybe a month ago, Sean and I were, were on a particular thing. Eh, it's probably, probably five or six months ago. And we were notified on the radio that, don't worry, there's a wilderness rescue expert. <laughs> and I looked at Sean and I said, what the fuck's a wilderness rescue expert? I didn't even know they gave out patches for that. Like, yeah. There Where do is I so get one? much that, that the wilderness medicine community, because we want to sound cool, we want to sound different, right? Yeah. Being a good wilderness rescue for paramedic, whatever the you want to call that, is practicing good medicine out of somewhere more than 50 feet from your truck. That is the only freaking difference, right? Yeah. The time scale gets longer. That's it. I'm going to get off my soapbox. This is your soapbox to rant on. Yeah. But, but the... The WPC, the IBSC certifications, whatever it is, right? And there's great classes, right? The CCEMTP course, I've heard is excellent. I look forward to taking it. It's going to provide me knowledge to make me a better provider. But holding the certification doesn't allow me or stop me providing a certain level of care to someone under my certification, unless my medical director or my bosses have decided I have to go get a certain level of certification to perform at a certain activity. And that's within my agency. That's not a credentialing. Yeah. Yeah, no, and you're 100% correct there. I think the only thing I'll kind of circle back to with the National Registry is while they are phasing out the practical skills exam that all of us old guys and gals are, are so intimately familiar with and used to dread so much, they have replaced it. And again, this will be very much program dependent on the mm. quality that you get. But to be, as you know, as an accredited paramedic program, your students all must have their their skills portfolio, right? So mm -hmm. you're still technically evaluating and signing off that Mike and Sean have both sat through and demonstrated competency and assessing and treating a trauma patient, a medical patient, acquiring and interpreting 12 lead ECG, et cetera, right? So these things are still there. They're just getting rid of the finalized test. Yeah, which... so I should probably clarify that. You're absolutely right. I'm not saying that testing that is good or bad. What I'm saying is, I, I explained that very poorly. My point was, the National Registry is moving toward a written test-only model. The education process prior to the test, right, the camps certification, all the things that allow a school to be certified to provide a paramedic program has a standard that you have to meet, and there's an education staff. The WPC, the FPC, the CCPC, you can watch YouTube and sit the test. That is the only requirement. Yep. The that test. Is there isn't an education component prior to it. The CCEMTP yes. is a little bit different. It's, it's 15 days of didactic lecture. You have to attend. You can't take the test unless you've attended it. I think it's 15 days. I could be wrong on that. Somebody will email us. But my point is, there's an education component before you sit the test, right? Yeah. Now that we've gotten rid of practicals, the paramedic exam for the National Registry looks a lot like sitting a test for the IBSC. You can go to Prometric site and take either of them. The difference is, you have to have certified through the process of education knowledge and skill set and a number of things before you can set the test. That is not a requirement of the WPC, the FPC, the CCPC. It's just a test. 
It doesn't mean you don't have to know things to take the test, but all you're doing is taking it. And nobody adopts that test as an authorization to do things unless it's policy. But there's no statute. There's no governing body from a state medical direction point of view that accepts the IBSC certifications as the thing. So getting your WPC, if you want to take the WPC, do it, man. I did it. Awesome. I'll help you. Send a note. But it doesn't make you a different paramedic or a better paramedic than just having a paramedic. Yeah, no, and that's exactly it, right? And so that, that's why I wanted to go back with that is, is just like you highlighted, the WPC, just because we're talking wilderness, yeah, you don't have to demonstrate any ability to function as a paramedic in these environments. You don't have to demonstrate the ability to critical care think, or not critical care, but critical thinking for long-term patient care or in complicated rescue environments, right? Like I said, it's just a test. It is what it is. Will I recertify it? I don't know. Depends on how crazy and what they come up with. Right now, I think there's, I think only one approved uh, review course, which those guys put on a really good course and I would go do it anyway, but that is what it is. Different discussion. All right, moving on though. The next one we're going to talk about is the Wilderness Medical Society's fellow, the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, the FOM, right? You see a lot of the wilderness folks, this is this is a big deal to have these four letters after your name. If you're one of those people that puts all the letters after your name. So in my opinion, this one starts to get at the right things, right? It's They make a good effort. So you have to submit both academic knowledge, right? You have to attain so many CEs. And so you have to have attended so many courses to have demonstrate you've at least attained a certain baseline knowledge in the what we'll call wilderness medicine. And then you also have to document experience, right? And so this is a big differentiator is you actually have to put down on paper and submit it to the WMS your experience with wilderness medicine. It's not just a, hey, I took a couple of these, you know, I took a Knowles course and then I took this other rescue course and I took this course and I've got the CE numbers. Now make me a, a fellow, right? You actually do have to have an experience requirement piece to that, which I think is is very good. And that's what most of these other things lack, right? So I think that is a very good step in the right direction. But again, it's largely self-certifying. I don't know how much they audit or follow up to see if did Sean really have all that time on a search and rescue team or all that work with wilderness agency X, whatever it might be? I don't know. They might. Not very, very similar, but a little bit different. Uh, we're going to talk about the Diploma in Mountain Medicine. Uh, there are several organizations across the world. This is kind of a global certification. I certainly don't know that if you have your, your DIM from an accredited program in Germany or England, does that equate to the same one you're going to get here in the U.S.? And again, in the U.S., this is hosted by the Wellness Medical Society. I don't know if there's any independent ones out there. I think there might be, but I'm not positive. Anyway, so it's your diploma in mountain medicine. They also have one for dive medicine. So very similar to the FOM. You have to go and attend, I think it's two or three days of academic lecture and successfully pass those pieces. And then each one of these modules, so there's, I think, a total of like six or so academic days that are split two to three days a piece. I want to say three days a piece for both, we'll call it summer and winter medicine. And then mm -hmm. you have similar, basically about a week long evolutions where you go out and actually perform physical skills, right? So you actually have to go and do their five day basics of rope and rock and stuff like that. So you get a little foundational climbing, you get your basics of rope and technical rescue in there. The winter portion, you know, a little glacier movement, crevasse rescue, movement to ice and snow kind of stuff. So again, these actually have a performance in the environment requirement, which is obviously what Mike and I are big fans of. That's the thing that a lot of these other programs lack. Now, the thing with the DIM is, I know through the WMS, is you have to attend, 
their academic portion and then their sponsored, uh, we'll call it hands-on field portion, right? So they know for a fact that you've attended and completed these things successfully. This is not a self-reporting thing. Like my, my prior history, I've completed all the DIM requirements by education and physical training, the actual courses I've attended and certifications I've held, but they don't accept just, hey, submit if you've done these independent things and we'll still grant you a diploma, right? You actually have to do their program, which I think is commendable and kind of where I would like to see more of the wilderness community go. I know it's a difficult lift. You can't do this. You have to have a lot of regional programs and schools to run these things. I know it's a bridge too far at this point, but in my opinion, this is the direction it needs to be. All right. So all that being said, at the end of the day, where does that leave us? All right. You have some bunch of pieces of paper that say wilderness. That's it. I look up at my wall and I have, well, actually right now in my wall, it's, it's only the one. No, two, right? I have my wilderness, my WPC and my FOM. You know, I have my two little certificates hanging up there with some of my other stuff up on the wall. Cool, right? They're neat. People think it's neat, but what does it really mean? Nothing. And this is, I don't know if we'll tackle this one maybe next year, Mike. Mm-hmm. So for folks, next year we're going to be transitioning some of our episodes, like our discussion topics and, and format stuff. And so we're going to be starting talking about some more paramedicine generalities as well as keeping on our, our wilderness side, but just so you know. So I think this would tie a little bit in with the like degree requirements for paramedics piece, right? Mm-hmm. And I have these pieces of paper. Do any one of them make me a better provider as a paramedic? And well, the answer for the two particular ones I have is absolutely not because none of them made me learn stuff except the FOMS with some experience and knowledge stuff there. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, nothing much, right? So again, Sean's personal opinion, the current state of wilderness certifications in the U.S. Now, again, I can only speak to us. I know overseas, there's a, they have a much more robust wilderness and austere pre-hospital, mm-hmm. especially medicine programs, right? Mm-hmm. With certifications that are actually required by their national governments and regional governments to actually operate in these environments. Like you must have this certification level or we will not let you go into the woods to treat a patient. In the U.S., are you part of a team that says, yes, you can go? You have a medical director? Sweet. Do good work. All right. But here in the U.S., that's just where we're at. There's a lot of stuff, and I'll call it arbitrary requirements, right? Made by folks that don't necessarily know what a certification means. Right? Now, you could have, and I've run into this, this really happens on the wellness first responder level. Like We make sure all of our people are wellness first responders. And I don't think a lot of these agencies really understand what that means. I think back in the day when somebody sold it to them, you know, and this really applies to like, you see this a lot with guiding services, whether that's professional guiding, people taking tours and treks, youth groups, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the water side is big on some of these things too, right? All of our guys are wilderness first responders. But what does that mean? Back in the day when they first established that, they said, yeah, that'd probably be a good thing. But now some of those people that established that requirement are long gone. And have they actually gone back in and looked, is, is a wilderness first responder really what we need? I mean, honestly, you know, based on what we see, what our needs are. And the answer might be yes. More training is always better. You will never hear me say that we should ever reduce the training requirement we have on anything. If anything, yeah, we need to make it longer, more robust, build better. But it is what it is. And so some people just throw out these things. Same thing with like getting my, my wilderness EMT. I'm going to give you a WEMP. I'm going to get that done. It's like, okay, cool. For what? Right? That's not going to help you get a job with the National Park Service. The National Park Service would like to see you have a National Registry of Emergency Medical Technicians current EMT card. Right, That's your in. That's having, your a WEMT, in. having a WEMT is like, I mean, neat, but cool, because 
they because it's the National Park Service, they stick with the National Registry. They don't require you to get a, a state certification because some of their guest folks bounce around. So the national certification is their certification. If you're already an EMT or above, don't you don't have to go seeking additional wilderness stuff thinking that's going to help you get a job with the park service. It's it's just hard to get a job with the park service. Like that is a fact, right? Depending grind. on what you're looking to yeah. depending on what you're you, looking you to gotta do. grind and be willing to spend a number of years yeah. doing seasonal work. But extra certifications might get your resume looked at a little bit more, but it is not the shoe. Yeah. And uh for the folks that I know we have a few listeners. Right, because we have a few. We used to until this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And again, I'm not poo-pooing any of these programs. All I'm saying is, we need to get past the days of sticks and duct tape bullshit. Right, stop. Right, we just need to be beyond that. If you teach somebody, this is again my rationale. If you teach somebody the proper principles and techniques for splinting or wound management, you Mm -hmm. can then improvise the materials to do those things with. You don't have to Mm -hmm. teach me how to use a stick so that I know how to use a stick as a splint. Right? I already know I need some sort of rigid device to hold my bones and stabilize, blah, blah, blah. Teach people how to do things the right way with the right equipment. Mm-hmm. Secondly, again, nothing against any of these companies, but be upfront with what you're selling. I don't know how many times I look at it because I'm always looking for training opportunities. And it's as a paramedic. And again, I'm not trying to make myself sound better than I am. But man, when you folks want to offer advanced practice, wilderness X course or come to this thing for advanced care providers and your basic curriculum looks like you had a basic woofer curriculum. Plus, we'll talk a little bit about IVs and drugs, but not actually really talk about patient stabilization, long-term care, things like that. You're falling short, right? Don't just Mm -hmm. stop. Just be honest with what you're teaching. As far as I know right now, there's only one legit course that actually puts that out there that, hey, we're going to teach you about doing this wilderness austere basic patient care in these remote environments for prolonged periods, right? There's only one course that's out there right now that I think is actually no kidding doing this, right? And it's another one Mike and I have been to. It's the SOAR extended austere provider. Yeah. But I mean, I can only speak to the class Mike and I went to, but it was a really good course, five days. You learn, we learned a lot of really interesting stuff. You get to practice some advanced skills and they actually put you in a scenario where you've got a semi-critical patient and you have to care for them for a lot longer than 90% of most paramedics are used to. I mean, it's multiple hours, like multiple hours, not just one or two, just, hey, and then we kind of call it a day. No, you're spending mid-afternoon till early next morning, right? Which for a lot of people, it's like, oh, that's not really that long. Anybody else that's doing 12 to 18 hours of patient care is probably in the military right now, or Mm. those few remote wilderness places where folks actually practice, right? But there's not a lot of that. So for all the other courses out there, if you want to advertise and sell courses for the various medical professionals that are already certified, for the love of God, start teaching materials that's at those levels. But I get it. You can't teach a three-day course and include from EMT through physician-level knowledge bases, but you can do better than basic wilderness first aid with sticks and duct tape because we now have paramedics and doctors. We're going to teach how to improvise a litter. Like, stop. Okay? Just, we're beyond that. Up your game, folks up your game. All right. So I think one of my last bits here is, and Mike could have read this out, but you know, Sean, you hold many of these certs. If you don't believe in them, why did you go and get a lot of these things? And why did you go to attend all these courses? You hold a lot of these certs. (laughs) Why do you, uh, what makes you feel this way, sir? And and what led you to this conclusion? Please. Well, honestly, a lot of it was because they were there. I'm always Mm -hmm. looking for knowledge. 
I love education. I like learning things. I keep debating going back to school and doing more college stuff, but I hate doing college, like having to do assignments and stuff. That's no fun. I just want to do the learning. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it, hey, they're there and you can't evaluate a course or talk about it if you haven't been to that program, right? That, that isn't fair. So I've been to a lot of programs and given their fair shake, it's like, hey, this sounds like it might be a good program. Then you get there and you do it and you're like, well, that was a waste of 600 bucks, well, whatever it might've been, right? Yeah. And then you go to like the SOAR course and you're like, man, that thing was awesome. I wish that thing was two weeks long, but it is what it is. And with a lot of these certs, will I renew these for some of them? Probably not. I mean, let's be honest, because for me right now, practicing where I practice, supporting the people I support, they look at it and go, oh, that's cool. Neat. And that's it. Right. They don't, they don't care. It doesn't give me anything else. Right. And I'm talking about my wilderness stuff. Yeah. Having a WPC or a farm trying to sell that to people is like, cool. Like a lot of these agencies, they themselves don't even know what they are. Right. Uh, I've seen a lot, several posts on social media where every National Park Service person should have their WPC. That's cool. Until you realize that there are very few paramedics practicing within the National Park Service. Yeah. As a ratio, you find me all the paramedics in the National Park Service, and I'll show you a relatively low perspective or percentage is the total number of people providing care in the parks. Yeah. And you could say, well, they should, you know, IBSC should create just like they did for the tactical paramedic, the tactical responder. They could have the wilderness responder for EMTs and below or advanced EMTs and below, I guess. They probably will. And one day, I think the IBSC eventually will because, hey, that's just more money for them because people are asking for it. So Mm -hmm. sure, they can create that test, take out the specific ALS stuff and you're done. Why would, you know, people, why wouldn't the National Park Service want all their people to be wilderness responder certified? Again, because at the end of the day, it didn't evaluate whether that park ranger was able to gain access to the patient, provide appropriate care, and support the extraction to definitive care, right? And realistically, that's what all this is about. So would I recommend people not go get their WPC or get their wellness EMT? Absolutely not. If that's what interests you and you think that's what you want to learn about, and like me, if you want to see if that actually has any meaning or it was good knowledge, absolutely go take those courses and then... If you haven't done one already, you might sit back now and go, oh, I kind of get what he was talking about. I was really hoping I'd learn more about mm-hmm. this specific stuff, subject or do more of this work in this course. And you didn't. And that's fine. I mean, it is what it is. You might take a good course somewhere. Somebody else teaching some rogue off the wall stuff to EMTs. By all means, have at it. You might have learned some really good stuff, gained a lot of good experience. Mm-hmm. But finding those courses is very difficult in the U.S. I'm at a point now where I've got to start traveling overseas. And I got to be honest, guys, I am getting older. I'm not old yet, but I'm no spring chicken. I don't have a lot left longer, a lot longer left doing this wilderness game, going backcountry with all this kid on my back. So I don't know if I'm going to keep these certs up for much longer. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but the reality is, is, is my career in wilderness EMS is winding down. You know, some of you are just starting out. And maybe one day the WPC and maybe a future WRC will be a standard for people to function and operate under wilderness EMS. Like I think right now, Mike and I are aware of there's only one state slash jurisdiction who's looking at WPC as a, as a gate requirement or practice in that environment, which yeah. good on them, use it. I don't know if that's ever going to gain a lot of traction anywhere else. It may, it may not. I don't see the WPC becoming anything like FPC or, or CCPC as far as those requirements. No, it's going to hang out in the TPC realm. Yeah, right. Where most people get that just to say they've got it as well. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not. I don't know anywhere that it's required. 
That's what I'm saying. I'm not aware it's of any jurisdiction that even their SWAT team doesn't that requires that, right? It's mm-hmm. your paramedic or an EMT who's assigned to a SWAT team or assigned part of direct support. I mean, actually, you and I both know several medics that are assigned and do work directly with law enforcement and SWAT. And I yeah. don't think any of them have a TPC or TRC, right? It's so. you attend the training with the guys, you have, get your basic weapon stuff if, if that's part of your, your scope working with them, et cetera. And you do your certifications through them. But mm-hmm. it is what it is. So anyways, I think, Mike, you have any other comments before I kind of give the little wrap-up bit? No. All right. So I mean, it's a banner day. I don't have an opinion on something. <laughs> Take note, folks. Take note. Day one. <laughs> Mike has no opinion on something. Yeah, first time for everything. I guess. So to wrap this up, wilderness medicine is absolutely awesome, right? I absolutely love doing this work. It is what the wilderness... EMS piece is what got me to go back to school and regain all my certifications after I let them lapse, after I thought I was done doing this work. You're welcome. Which, yeah, it's Mike and God, yeah, Mike and God bless you, Stacy, for asking yeah. so nicely. But I'm glad I did, right? She pushed me like, hey, please do this. It'd be cool if you did. And I did. So I went back to like all the schools, which don't do. <laughs> but right now, the available certifications and the training that's out there, just in my opinion, doesn't carry much weight outside of a very specific, very small niche community of interest, right? The only people that care about that care about having your FOM, your fellowship in the Academy of Wilderness Medicine are other FOM guys or guys that are really invested in the WMS, right? Just because it's, it's a milestone for that organization. And if you're part of that club, then most people expect you to earn your FOM. It's very, very rare for somebody to join the the WMS had not earned their farm, right? Not to say there aren't plenty of people that don't do it. I mean, there's at all provider levels that are members and never get it just because they're interested in the articles and picking up on some of the, the insights and the research that comes out on the, on the side of the, of the coin for medicine. But it is what it is, right? At the end of the day, saying you have a wilderness something next to your name in the United States really just doesn't mean anything. What mm-hmm. means something and this is the hard one, right? Is your experience. When you can go to somebody, like say I moved from where I'm at and I went back out west, moved back to Colorado or out in the Sierras, I was in Nevada, someplace, Montana, someplace beautiful with big mountains, like mountain mountains. I said, hey, I want to be on your wilderness EMS response team. They'd be like, cool, do you have your WPC? Probably not going to be the first thing they ask. I'm like, what's your experience? Well, I've done this, this, and this. I've been to these courses. I've been graduated this program. And I do also have these certifications, right? But mostly it's about that level of experience. And that's what people really care about. And I think that's that's what's lacking for the few people. And we've had a few over the last couple of years, folks send us emails or messages like, hey, how do I get into this work? What courses do I need to go to? Take some of these courses, absolutely. But the thing is, is you need to, you need to get into the environment, right? We, we've had, I think... Mm-hmm an entire episode about this is wherever it is you intend to practice, you need to be comfortable functioning in that environment. You should already know your medicine. Like, I don't know how many times we brought it up in episodes, like as a provider, if you don't know your, your pathophysiology and fundamentals of wound care and, and pharmacology, you know, what are you doing? I don't care where else you're practicing your medicine, right? If you don't know those things, you're wrong to begin with. Now you have to be able to carry those things into that environment. And so you have to be able to work in the environment. You're already expected mm-hmm. to be able to function as a paramedic, but now you have to be a paramedic who's in the woods, 
And the big piece that you're not going to get just about every one of these training courses is that that time period, right? It's the extended patient care. Four to six hours, depending on your patient, is not that bad, right? It's when you start hitting that 12, 18 hours plus, especially when Mm -hmm. you have a sick patient, that's when it gets tricky. And that's when the experience really pays off. Like I said, there's I'm only aware of the one course here in the US that's currently training to that standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's that's scratching the surface in the space, right? Yeah. I walked away from that particular class going, holy shit, the things I don't know was way bigger than the list of things I did. Yeah. But it was the only course that I've taken in quite some time that really pushed me to think at a different level. Yeah. Now I'm going to take it again. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is, and I've contemplated going back for it. Uh, which we'll have to talk offline. The other course we've been trying to go through with them for years is back up in February or something. Yeah, so. I, I saw that too. I wrote on the dates. Um, yeah. <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, so again, so for all the educational companies that are out there, all the big name ones, all you little ones, independent guys, when you're talking about advertising, wilderness medicine training and certifications, really think about what you're selling, what you're trying to teach people. We need to get out of this mentality of, of wilderness medicine as sticks and duct tape. It's not. It's the environment. Right. I know it's difficult in a two day course to put people in the woods and make them do stuff. But even a little bit of time, not in a classroom or not in a lawn right outside of your classroom is good. If you can find just some small little wooded area that you can take them to as best you can simulates a wilderness environment and make them operate next to the fallen trees and the streams and the creeks. And if it's raining outside, it's raining. Right. This is where we need to be going. And we need to be showing more experience in this thing, not just an ability to memorize what core body temperatures are in Celsius and how they have the different levels for hypothermia. Anyway, that's enough of that. So uh, if you got some comments on that, I would appreciate it. Hit us up and uh, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I'll just quit. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to hit the stop button. If you have any questions or comments or ideas for show topics, you can send us an email at the show at emsonthemountain.com or hit us up on social media. We can be found on Facebook and Instagram at EMS on the Mountain, Twitter at EMSOTM, or you can engage with us and a whole community of wilderness EMS professionals at locals.com slash wilderness EMS. Until the next episode, thanks for joining us. And until we see you on the mountain, train hard. Be safe and do good work.